Good morning, everybody. What an honor and privilege to be back. You know, I, I'm always honored that I get to come here to Pearlside and preach to you. And, but to be able to preach twice in less than a year, that is a miracle. <laughs> and truly, actually, a blessing for me. You know, as we, you guys have been in, in churches around our movement, all over the world have been talking about miracles and studying the book of John. And interesting about John is that there's seven signs, right? Now, though, of all the Gospels, there's actually 37 miracles recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But, and, and the other guys, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, actually record 20 miracles in each. But John is different. John is really special. There's seven of them. Now, at the end of the, the last chapter and the last verse, he actually said, if I was to record all the miracles that Jesus performed, there's not enough books in the world to be able to contain all the, all the miracles that Jesus performs. Come on, somebody say amen. amen. And so I want to read out of John chapter 6, verse 5 to 14, our text this morning. And then we're going to cover some of the, the points and then share some of my, how God performed miracles in my life. It reads like this, in verse 5, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, everybody say Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Verse 10, Jesus said, have, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Somebody say 5,000. And then Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets. Everybody say 12 baskets. 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Father, as we go into this sermon and this message, Lord, can you minister to your people? Give hope to your people, Lord God. Love on your people in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. Now, I don't know about you, but I've always asked the question, um, how do crises, because the, the title of our message this morning is Jesus, the silver lining of life's crisis. If every cloud has a crisis, every believer needs to know that the silver lining in your life is Jesus himself. Come on, slap the person next to you tell them, I think the, this message is for you. Okay? Come on, tell, tell the neighbor, this message is for you. <laughs> don't worry, somebody's going to lose in this game, okay? So don't, don't, don't get distracted. <laughs> so, so why do things happen? You know, I mean... I've always asked that question, why do bad things happen to good people? Why, you know, people who are so healthy and yet they die and there's accidents that happen in our lives. And, and I can only attribute it to four things. Number one is that there's is this thing called depravity. Everybody said depravity. Ever since Genesis 3, the fall of man, there's, we live in a broken world surrounded and filled with broken people. Amen, somebody? We live in an imperfect life. Right? I mean, everything in this world is temporary, and yet the Apostle Paul says the things that you do not see actually is eternal, but the things that we see are temporary. 
Okay, turn to the same person and tell them, you're just temporary. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> and so, so depravity is, is part of the cause of the crisis that some, we sometimes face in our lives. And the next one is demonic. There's a, the Bible tells us that there are spiritual principalities and powers in the air. In fact, Apostle Paul clearly tells us that the, the battle that we are in is, is, is not of the flesh, but it's a spiritual warfare. Okay, so there's a demonic spirit, demonic spirits that their, their whole desire is to kill, steal, destroy anything that has to do with God's purpose and plan in your life. Amen. So we know that there's a demonic part of what brings crisis into our life. And of course, there's the divinity. Everybody say divinity. Or the deity. Sometimes uh, God allows certain things to happen. I don't believe that God puts disease on you to, to try to teach you a lesson. I, I believe he's the guy that turns things around. He's the guy that causes all things to work together for good to those who believe in him and are called according to his purpose. Somebody say amen. Right? When, some of you know the story of Joseph. He had a dream and his brothers were jealous. They threw him into a pit. And from the pit, he goes to the palace. But there's this long process of going through ups and downs in his life. But God was with him. Right? And at the end, when, when his dream came true and his brothers realized that, man, the guy that we threw in the pit, the brother we thought we killed, he's actually the ruler of all of Egypt. And only the Pharaoh is more powerful than him. And, and they're afraid of their lives. And Joseph tells him, no, you did not send me here. God sent me here. Sometimes we end up in places that we don't like, but sometimes God will use certain places that we don't like to get us to where we need to be. Oh, it's not the person next to you telling me, this is going to be good today. It's going to be good, right? So and then the next thing that, that I think that causes crisis to come into our life is our decisions. Sometimes we create our own chaos and our own stress. We blame the devil. We blame all kinds of people and all this. And yet you don't realize, no, no, you're the one to blame. You're the one that made this, the decision. And so sometimes we got to look at ourselves and all up to our own sins and our own mistakes and our own shortcomings and inadequacies, knowing that we don't have anybody to blame except we've got to take responsibility. Amen. The good news, and many preachers have used this, God can take our, take our mess and make it a message, our testimony and our trials into triumph. I like what Max Lucado, the great author, says. He says, God can take the ashes of our broken dreams and turn them into a crown of beauty. Billy Graham says, God can bring good out of any situation. Everybody say any. any. Any situation, no matter how bad it seems. Amen. We're either going, we're either going into a battle or are in a battle or coming out of a battle. Kind of the three seasons of our lives. But can I tell you that there's a silver lining in every crisis. I was just at a church, I preached at a French church, and there, some devastating things have happened to their leadership and I told him, you know what, I know this is a time to mourn, but can I tell you that this is this also, there's an opportunity in this season where God can draw you in and he can do great things even in the midst of crisis. Some of you know sometimes in the midst of crisis we're desperate and we draw close to God. Somebody say amen. All right, pastor, so what's the, what about the text? What about the text? So let's look at this text. Jesus sees a potential crisis about to happen. He's got thousands of people. Now, they say 5,000, but it's 5,000 men. Matthew clarifies that in his gospel. It's men. So some commentators said that if you actually count 
all the people with the women and the children as well, there was possibly 20 to 25,000 people. Now, why would anybody care about feeding 20 to 25,000 people? Come on, somebody. If you know the Middle Eastern people, they're, they're very generous. And one of the things, especially with the Jewish people, they believe that it is divine, according to the Mishnah and some of their sacred writings, it is divine to host guests, right? In fact, uh, Matthew, in, in Genesis 18, Abraham, actually, he was in Hebron. There were three men who were wayfarers passing through, and he hosted them, bowed down to him, uh, gave him cakes, and killed a calf, and fed them, not even knowing that two of those guys were angels of the Lord on the way to Sodom and Gomorrah to bring judgment. And one of those guys was actually God himself. So they believe it's divine to host people. Well, because Jesus was having this outdoor conferences, come on, somebody, he was responsible for them climbing all up towards the top of the mountain and to feed them. So I'm so appreciative that Jesus is still showing himself to be a Jewish man, right, that is willing to feed the thousands of people. Come on, somebody, say amen. So he realized that this potential crisis, and so he's, because he's divine, in fact, in the book of John, the prologue in the beginning, he teaches that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, it says that the flesh, actually, that the God that he's talked about, the Word, became flesh. So he, this God, this Jesus, is actually divine, right? He, so he's, he's not just 100% man, he's 100% God. So he actually sees things from the end to the beginning. He already knows how he's going to resolve this situation. He uses this opportunity to coach his 12 boys. Come on, somebody, say amen. Now, these 12 guys were just ordinary men, right? They were not from the cream of the crop. They were not the best of the best, right? They were not the spiritual elite. They were not titles with Sadducees, Pharisees, or teachers of the law. They weren't scribes. They weren't even the intellectual elite. They, they, they weren't summa cum laude or magna cum laude or cum laude, like you and I, some of them were probably lari dari, I like the party kind of people. <laughs> right? So they weren't the best. But Jesus chose these men to represent the 12 tribes. You're going to be the pillar of the movement that starts from Jerusalem. And you're going to be the pillar. In fact, he said, you're one day going to judge the 12 tribes. Revelation 21 actually points to the fact that the new Jerusalem will have 12 foundational stones that's going to be built on these 12. And can you imagine the second century, the 12 kept on growing and multiplying all the way to the 21st century. We're still here just because these 12 ordinary men who were tasked with extraordinary mission. Stop the person next to you, man. I think God is talking to you this morning. Because he was divine. He knew exactly what he was going to do. He, he was picking on Philip, but he was really picking on everybody. He wanted to coach everybody. Sometimes as a coach, I used to coach football, I, I would take one bad attitude and make it an example. If you hit somebody out of bounds when you know that breaks the rules and now your team is penalized, you're selfish. And you're, you're taking advantage of, of putting your own agenda above the team's agenda. And so when, as a coach, I correct that and I address that. But I'm not just correcting the kid. What am I doing? I'm addressing everybody. Because I want you to know, no matter what you do in this team, you're going to follow the rules. Don't put your agenda before the team's agenda. Amen. So Jesus uses this opportunity to engage, establish, equip, and empowers his disciples to do the work of ministry. So Philip replies, and he says, 
He says, Rabbi, not even eight months of wages could buy enough bread to feed the multitudes. Philip didn't believe that this crisis could be resolved. There is no way. There is no way. Now, can I encourage you this morning that no matter what crisis comes your way, it always presents you with opportunities. Every crisis, there's a silver lining in that crisis. And for us as Christians, it's Jesus. He is the one that gives us hope even in the midst of chaos, in the midst of challenging moments. Somebody say amen. The first thing you got to know is the opportunity for God to show himself faithful. He is faithful. Lamentations tells us that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Hebrews 10.23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. God is faithful. In all my life you have been faithful. In all my life you have been so, so good. Yeah, I'm not singing, but I just want to tell you. But see, when you face crisis in your life, man, when you sing songs, this, this is not songs. Man, it's your heart. It's your expression of the depths of your soul. Knowing, Lord God, man, I was going through a crisis. You were there. He is faithful. The other opportunity is to know that he's not only faithful, but this is an opportunity to give God glory. It is an opportunity to give him glory so that when we go through crisis, you know it's not a comfortable situation. It's not a comfortable season to be in. But know that God is faithful and that he will receive glory. Amen. You know, I don't know about you, but when I go through crisis, I actually draw closer to God. When everything's good, you don't draw near to God. You know why? Because all's good. All's good. You're on the mountaintop. I can see everything. I'm good. So we, we don't, we tend to be lazy in our spiritual life, right? We start taking it easy. We take the, the, the foot off the gas pedal. And we know we're just cruising now. Not realizing maybe there is a crisis that's about to come. But this is where our desire is to draw closer to God. I know as a pastor, I draw closer to God when I'm going through tough times. Man, I read my Bible more when, I, when, I draw, when I'm going through tough times and go through crisis. I pray more. I'm more aware of what God is doing in my life. I draw near to him because I want him to draw near to me. And not only that, but there's an opportunity for us to grow in our faith. Amen, somebody. That's why he said that James tells us to count it all joy when you encounter various trials. The testing of your faith will produce strength, endurance, character. Amen. Right? Man, I don't know about you, but I appreciate, I don't always agree with what God does. But I'm so grateful for the outcome that God does in my life. Amen. See, sometimes God uses crisis in our lives to draw us to him. And that's actually what happened to me. I, when I was in high school, I grew up at KPT. Everybody say, God bless KPT and put your hand towards KPT. <laughs> I grew up in the hood. And so I had an opportunity through athletics and, and believe it or not, actually through basketball to, to, to go to different private schools. But... I actually chose University Lab School, and, and uh, there I played for Pac-5, and, and uh, we, went for, we were last place in my sophomore year. In my senior year, we went undefeated and won the Oahu Prep Bowl Champions, Championship. And it is there that I met my beautiful wife, who was my girlfriend 43 years ago. 
43 years ago. Married for 36. And when I met her, you got to understand, you know, she was a boarding student. Her father was a colonel in the, military, in the army. And, uh, you know, she's a blonde hair, blue eye, beautiful girl. And so she was the pride and joy of my life. I would, when the Punahou Carnival went, I was walking with my girl, letting, <laughs> make sure everybody knew. This Samoan boy from the hood got this beautiful chick, man. That's right. That's my girl. That's my girl. But everybody who was close to me and, and, and attended university lab school during my time, they knew that this girl made a major difference in my life. Because I, all I did was go to school on Tuesday, Thursdays, because that's when P.E. started. We had P.E., right? And, and, and every day, though, I went to lunch, and then I would skip out again and go football practice. Then I realized I couldn't play if I didn't have the grades. But this girl helped me to understand that even though you grew up on the other side of the tracks, you got a brain. God blessed you with a brain. You're actually smarter than you think you are. Did a 10-page report on Huckleberry Finn, and the teacher knew that I was not interested in Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> and so he gave me a magazine of Sports Illustrated of Walter Payton. He said, everybody does, well, you know, Huckleberry Finn, you are going to do Walter Payton, 10-page report. He said, Joe, every time I see you in lunch, you, the way you talk to, tell stories, man, people are captivated. Just write that way. So I did write that way. I got an A minus when I got the paper back. The teacher says, you know what, the only reason why you didn't get an A plus is because in the 10 pages, you only had one capital and one period in all 10 pages. <laughs> Come on, somebody. I said, oh, I don't know where to put all that stuff, the comma, the dots, and all that stuff. You said talk like you talk to my people, right? So that's what I did. But, but you got to understand, and she was my heart. She, she, God used her. We weren't saved. We didn't know anything about God back then. I, we didn't go to church, but we didn't have a relationship with God. And then when I got to college and I went to the University of Hawaii, I you know, I, I had a lot of success right from the beginning. There were a lot of injuries. I ended up playing right from the start of my freshman year. And I started hanging around with the wrong guys that frequented the, the nightclubs in Waikiki. And I started finding myself gravitating towards that lifestyle. And all of a sudden, the relationship we had was no longer special to me. And I, because there were a lot of other special-looking girls on the campus. And so here I am. I've become this womanizer. And my relationship struggles and by the time my junior year comes out, my wife, who was my girlfriend back then, Ann tells me she's pregnant. I said, man, I ain't got no time for, for a kid. Get rid of that kid. Get an abortion. I'm not ready for a kid. She got to the point she became a believer. She started attending a small little church in Kaneohe called Bayview Chapel Assembly of God. And her friends went there, and they, they embraced her. She began to believe. She said, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm going to have this child with you or without you. Because she didn't have any family, even though our relationship was strained, we still stayed in touch with each other. You couldn't tell that we were actually separated in heart, but we were together. And then the time came when she was, had to deliver. And so we were a couple in the hospital in the, in, the, in, the, in the room there, and the doctor, after 72 hours of hardcore labor, because her doctor was one of those naturalists, you know, the tree hugger kind of type people. So 
uh, they didn't want any kind of medication. They didn't want, they wanted this birth to be natural. But she was suffering. And after 72 hours of intense labor, her blood pressure, her heartbeat, everything went south. And the doctor came to us and said, does she have any family here? And I said, we are her family right here, me and my mom. He says, well, we might make, have to make a decision because she may not make it. Baby may not make it. Or either she, your wife or girlfriend doesn't make it, but baby makes it. Now, for many years, since I was on UH campus, Pastor Norman Nakanishi chased me around that campus, tried to preach to me. And I would give him some respect and, and let him talk. But from, you know, several times and after that, every time I saw a small Japanese guy, I ran across the campus. There's another guy named Dave Horn, a holy guy, that, that man loved the Lord and he preached to me every time he got a chance. But they would preach to me and say, Joe, man, you gotta, you gotta repent. You gotta ask God for forgiveness of your sin. I'm like, man, I go to church. I'm a Catholic. You're a Christian. You know I'm a Catholic. <laughs> Some of you guys can laugh. You know that. But then all of a sudden, in the, in the, in the delivery room, we realized the seriousness of the situation. And the more she was in pain, the more the conviction of the sin in my life, living a double life, began to really weigh on me. I mean, I was suppressing the, the guilt in me of living a life for, for several years. And I, I was trying to press it down. It's like a beach ball that you're trying to hide from the kids, but it's trying to surface every time. Boy, did it surface in the delivery room. I was so convicted of my sin. I felt like, God, maybe is, is this... Don't let, let me die. Don't let her die, okay? Let her live. And I prayed, and I asked God. I said, God, you know, I'm not one to pray. But I'm going to ask you this, that if you save Anne and you save the baby, I promise you, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to surrender my life and give you access to everything that I am and everything that I hope to be. Well, the end of the night, Talia... Lelia my Latua came out, my oldest daughter, and my girlfriend back then, Dan, survived everything. And I got to tell you the truth, weeks and months after that, things began to progressively change. Why? Because I decided to surrender everything to God. Was everything perfect? No. But man, God began to do a work in me. And I am so glad that God can do a work in you as well. Amen, somebody. The second point of this message is the solution. Andrew recognizes a boy with five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Kind of similar response that Philip had. All they needed to do really is to remember that in the book, according to John, they already saw three miracles, right? In chapter 5, they saw the guy that was paralyzed for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda. All of a sudden, he gets healed. Get up. Pick up your mat. Walk. They should remember when, when they were in Canaan after going to a feast in Jerusalem, they're back in the Galilean area. And there's this, this official from Capernaum that comes to Canaan. They see Jesus and say, hey, can you come with me back to Capernaum because my son is dying. Jesus says, go back to your son. He's healed. He heals them. In Canaan, the first miracle in the book of John was the turning of water to wine. He saw that too. And I'm sure some of you guys pray over your water as well. So anyway, but uh, Jesus was the silver lining of their crisis. I love the fact that uh, with man, this is impossible, but with God, 
all things are possible. Somebody say amen. So Jesus intervenes and prepares to resolve this crisis. And what does he do? He says, okay, guys, chill out. Sit down on the grass. Get planted grass. Sit down on the grass. Okay, chill out. I don't know about you, but when I'm going through a crisis, I stress out. And I don't want to chill out. Don't tell me to chill out. Don't give it a Christian, Christianese pray. No, 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 no. I want to resolve the situation. I want the situation to be better. But yet Jesus says, no, no, chill. Relax. I don't know about you, but you know, I could just picture right? everybody just beginning to sit down. I would be complaining, man, I'm tired, man. I'm hungry. <laughs> sit down. <laughs> chill out. So what happens is Jesus took the little bit of faith they had, the five loaves of bread and two fish, the little that they had, and he begins to, he prays for it, and it's in his hands, he prays for it, and he begins to distribute it, and it doesn't stop. I kind of laugh because being a Samoan, you know, when you plan for a party of 200 people, you already know going to get 800 people going to show up. Because they don't invite all their aunties, uncles, and relatives. And I, I got to tell you, I've seen Jesus and God multiply the food in Samoan parties. Hey, man. No laugh. I know you Filipinos. You know you do that. You know what I mean. But I think the bottom line is you got to see that Jesus takes the little things, the little things, the little faith that you give him and, and let it, place it in his hands. Let him take it. And anything that is in his hands multiplies. Situation, crisis is resolved because it's in his hands. And sometimes you'll come to a place in the, in the midst of your crisis that that's all you have left. That's all you can do. Well, when I got drafted by the Dallas Cowboys, and for all those of us who are Dallas Cowboys fans, I don't know about you, but I'm a, I'm a great winner, but I'm a poor loser. <laughs> I don't like the fact that the 49 is playing right now. <laughs> so jealous. I'm so hurt. So disappointed. But I was at the Dallas Cowboys, and, and uh, I was a mid-round draft pick. But in minicamp, I impressed the coaches. I broke many records. In strength, I was the strongest guy on the team. And, uh, and they said, Joe, you, you got a mid-round contract, but we feel that you might be able to take over the starting position, and if you do, if you start so many games, we'll tear up the contract, we'll write a bunch of zeros at the end of the contract. Basically saying, you could actually make millions if you make this team. So I'm doing well. I'm kicking everybody's butt who's in front of me. <laughs> You're that confident, Pastor? Yeah, uh, yes, I am. But all of a sudden, some of my old injuries that I had in college and even in high school, my neck injury, would have these stingers that would cause my, my shoulder and my arm, right arm, to get partially paralyzed for, us for several minutes and they'd come back. And I knew that one of the things I prayed for is that God, that in this camp, it's a three-week camp and two-a-days practice. And I'm not sure if my neck's going to be able to. So sure enough, uh, the third week, my shoulder started giving out and I could not um, continue. But I continued because I wanted to make the team. And I had dreams and 
desires to buy mom and dad a house and put my beautiful wife into a beautiful home and live a blessed life. But that didn't happen. A week before the first game, I get a Korean injury to my neck that left me actually paralyzed. And I um, could not move, and I was on a stretcher, take my helmet to the stretcher, and they had me go through all these scans and x-rays. And one of the doctors told me that it's highly possible that you are going to be a quadriplegic for the rest of your life. And I got to tell you the truth, when you test it out and you have so much hopes and actually see your dream begin to unfold and then to see the door crash on you, it was so devastating. It was so hurtful. I mean, I just cried and cried. And in these x-ray machines, I just couldn't stop crying. I just was weeping the whole time. And yet I knew that every time they would try to give me these trick tests to see if I could feel things. I could not feel things at all below my waist, but yet uh, my head could move, my neck could move, and I started getting a little bit of feelings in my, my fingers. But it wasn't until a couple of days later that my friend, who was a young preacher, and just bold and arrogant like that, confident, he came into the, the room, and he did not know the severity of my injury. All he knew that I was hurt, so he gets to the hospital, and he, he, he just says that he looks at me and says, get out of that bed right now. He didn't quote scripture. <laughs> he didn't give me any theological lecture. He just said, get out of your bed right now. And man, I saw this arrow come out of his mouth. It hit me right here, right in my heart. And all I felt was this, somebody poured a bucket of warm oil over my head. And everywhere that oil began to drip down my body, I began to feel again. And so I got out of bed, and I walked to him and gave him the biggest hug. And I told him, I don't know about you, you don't know, but I couldn't walk. I was told I was going to be a quadriplegic. Of course, the nurses freaked out. The nurses, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my gosh. And, and they, they ran, called the doctor. The doctor came later. And when the doctor came, of course, he had his medical terminologies. I, I think what happened is that <laughs> it was a, <laughs> he's all these big words, I didn't know. It's this, uh, this severe contusion to the spinal cord, <laughs> to the C2, C3 area. And uh, you know, I, yeah, whatever, all I know is I'm healed. All I know is I saw this arrow come out of his mouth and poof, and the oil came over my body. I don't know what that was all about. All I know is that I'm healed. God healed me because I put my little faith, just a little, I just have a little faith. God, if you are there, heal me. God began to heal me. And although my career ended, the best news for me was I was able to go back home, be with my wife and my oldest daughter, Talia, and was able to love on them. Come on, somebody. I, I cried for two years. I cried for two years. I couldn't watch any NFL games, especially when I watched Dallas Cowboys and I saw the guy who was third string behind me. Now is the starter. I'm like, oh, my God, I don't want to see this. I don't want to see this. <laughs> it took time for God to heal my heart, but sure, he sure did. The ending of this message is the glory. Jesus' solution and miracle was above and beyond what was needed. Jesus took it, prayed for it, blessed it, and he multiplied to make sure that everybody got more than enough. 
In fact, he says, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing may be lost. Can I tell you that Jesus' math is totally different from ours? Five plus two equals seven is our math. Jesus' math is five plus two equals 5,000, remainder 12. <laughs> See, I did listen in math class. But this, this miracle here certainly pointed to the sovereignty, the power of the Messiah. He, Jesus Christ, truly was the Messiah that the Old Testament prophets prophesied about. Amen, somebody. Amen. Truly, he is the Messiah. Although my career ended with the Dallas Cowboys, and I wasn't able to make the millions of dollars that I knew I would have made, God opened up another door. I started getting stronger and stronger and stronger to the point I started representing the islands of Samoa and the United States of America all over the world competing in the world's strongest men competitions. And I had the privilege and honor not only to make the finals once, but make the finals twice. How do you do that? Go from paralysis and not being able to move and being told that you're going to be a quadriplegic to becoming one of the strongest men in the world. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. Jesus truly is the silver lining in all the crises that we face in our lives. You know, even as I share that, I realize that some of you may be facing situations that you need God's intervention and you need God's miracle in your life. And I want to pray for that. I appreciate I got permission from the pastor to pray. Some of the most greatest moments of healing in my life has happened in some of the most awkward moments of my life. And I'm going to challenge some of us to, that if you're in the midst of crisis, I want to pray for you and I want to believe for God, whether it's your health, whether it's a healing for somebody else, whether it's a financial thing, whether it's a relational thing, whatever is going on and whatever crisis you, you, you may find yourself in, maybe God brought you here for this moment. There's somebody that God took from KPT to come in Monk's pulpit to encourage you that God can do the same miracles in your life that he did in his. All we have to do is give him something, maybe a response. Father, I'm so grateful for this opportunity. And I'm going to give several different altars. I'm going to give a salvation call right after this. But maybe for some of us here, you have a smile on your face you have a frown on your heart. And yet, I know God is proud of you for making strong stand, still coming to church. But maybe today God wants to do something and take it a little bit step further and bring breakthrough, turnaround in your life. I'm sure there's many of you like me that have seen the power of God move in his life or her life and turn things around. And perhaps the, the anointing of the turnaround, that God's ability to turn things around in your life in the midst of your crisis, that he wants to do that in you now. If that's you now, with every head bowed and eyes closed, this may be for you. Can I challenge you not to lose this opportunity? It's just, it's just me encouraging your faith to continue to believe so that we want to give Jesus a situation. If you're facing a crisis right now, would you admit to that? Number one, that'd be point nine. when I count to three, would you raise your right hand? One, two, three, raise your right hand. 
See, there's so many of us. You're not alone. One of the biggest things the devil tried to lie to us is that we're, in, we're alone. No, we're not alone. We're all facing issues. We might be doing some good in some areas in our life, and yet there's a few areas in our life that's been stubbornly filled with crisis. If that's you this morning, you've raised your hands. I want to ask you to do one thing. I want to pray for you, and I'm going to ask you actually to be bold. And I know that because we have multiple services, we're not always able to do this kind of stuff. But I think the, Pastor Billy gave me the permission to do this. If that's you, and you really need God to turn things around, can I ask you to do me something, do a favor? Can you stand to your feet and come to the altar? When I count to three, just come. One, two, three, come. I'm going to pray for you. Look at this. Thank you, Lord God. It takes faith. It takes faith just to come up. It takes faith to the risk of embarrassment. But I don't know about you, but when I'm desperate, I don't care what anybody thinks. I just want God's turnaround anointing on my life to turn things, the situations around. And I know the Holy Spirit is already beginning to work on some of our hearts. You're saying, well, Pastor Joe, what is all this coming up front? And it's just a step of faith. In fact, you took steps of faith coming up here because you believe that in this series, we've been, we're believing God for miracles. And I know that some of you are believing for a miracle. And so right now, Father God, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, for those that have come forward, Lord God, that are trusting and believing in you, and in this past several weeks and months, Lord God, that we've been covering this series, we don't want to just sing about miracles. We don't want to just talk about miracles and hear preaching messages about miracles. We actually want to experience your miracles. And so, Lord God, right now, in the name of Jesus, and I think we can go into a song, and I'm going to ask you to bathe and saturate yourself in the presence of God, and we're going to believe God for miracles to happen. Look at me. You believe that God can do miracles? He can. He can. He can. He's a, he's a can guy, okay? He can. That's why some of my Mexican friends say he's a Mexican, right? Because he can. Okay, so this is what we're going to do. We're going to pray, but I want you to, 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 to worship. To worship, and then we're going to come back and pray. And we're going to ask God to turn things around. Okay?